tell you a little bit about um, something that happened a few years ago that has been ringing in the back of my head these last couple of weeks. When I was living in Boston, I took a few weeks to teach a Sunday school class at a really sweet uh, Swedish covenant church in Boston. And uh, on the way to class, escorting this wonderful 100-year-old woman's class, I had a conversation with her that had left, left, left a lasting impression on my mind. She said something to me that I, that I has, has rung in my ears ever since. She said that when she was a kid, there were no cars, there were no airplanes, and there was no indoor plumbing. And of course I knew all of these things, all these advances in technology happened in the 20th century, but there was something about one person's lifespan encapsulating all of those, those advances that really made it stick with me. And I realized something, that the world today is a smaller place than it's ever been before. By the time you and I get out of elementary school, we know more about the world than people learned in their entire lifespan 100 years ago. You know, I was learning about countries on the other side of the, uh, the planet. I was learning about technology, all this stuff in elementary school. And this virtual and potential proximity to everyone else on the planet has a direct effect on what it means to be the church today, Gone are the days when churches could ignore the diversity and the complexity of the world. They're just gone. Those days are over. Gone are the days when churches could exist in what I'm calling blissful homogeneity. This ignorance what's going on all over the world. We live in an era where ignorance of cultural diversity and isolation from it isn't just improbable, you almost have to be willfully intentional about it. Right? Because it's all around us, everywhere. But the call of the gospel is not to ignorance and isolation. The call of the gospel is to become a new people rooted in Christ, characterized by Christ's Inclusive love. That's the call of the gospel. So that is why we've been in this series, calling the series Swimming Lessons, a deep dive into culture. The reason why we're calling it Swimming Lessons is because we're using this metaphor of culture as water, like water. Culture is all around us, influencing us all the time, even when we're not aware of it. To help us see the water that we're swimming in, we want to hear from different voices, not just my voice, we're going to have different voices in this series. Oshita's going to be one of those voices. I have some guest speakers coming that I'm really excited about. I still don't have dates lined up exactly for those guest speakers, but when I do, I will announce them and I'll be really excited about it. But, um, but we want to hear from a, a variety of different voices. On top of the voices you're going to hear from on a Sunday morning, we also want to draw from some of the best scholarship in this field. Uh, I believe some of the best scholars this field are Dr. Sunchan Ra, Dr. Christina Cleveland, and Dr. Richard Twist, who's no longer with us right now, but uh, we will see him again soon. And their books, I think, have contributed to my thinking on this topic in a really powerful way. And uh, I'm excited about the ways in which they're going to inform this series. In addition to that, not just the Sunday morning, but also on Mondays and Wednesdays, Wednesday, you can join us by digging in even deeper into this topic, by reading and discussing uh, two books with a, a group of people uh, in your neighborhood or close to your neighborhood. 
One of them is on Monday night. Trina Wu is going to host a blessed group that's going to go through the next evangelicalism, freeing the church from Western cultural captivity. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Ra, fantastic book, seminal book in the field. And then on Wednesday nights, I'm going to be hosting a group at my place, going through the book called Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces that Keep Us Apart, by Dr. Christina Cleveland, another seminal book in this field. I think that these are fantastic opportunities for us to dig in deeper. I want to encourage you to be part of one of those groups for both of them. Um, so, we're going to be exploring this thing called culture. We want to see the water that we're swimming in. Why? Why do we need to see the water that we're swimming in? Firstly, because as, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be formed by the way of Jesus. And to repent of the ways in which we are malformed by the cultures around us. We can become influenced by cultures around us in ways that lead us outside of or away from the way of Jesus. Secondly, as a intentionally multi-ethnic church, as one covenanted, multi-ethnic, unified family in Christ, we are called to love one another as part of our witness as disciples. And so to love one another well, we have to understand the forces that seek to keep us apart. We need swimming lessons. So, Today we're going to continue in our series looking at uh, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is this portion of Genesis that is about the rise of human culture and the fall of human culture, leading up to the story of Abraham. So this morning's message is called The City of Cain. So before we dive in, let's pray uh, as we look into the scriptures. Spirit of God, we pray that you would be with us, in us, among us this morning. And we especially ask that you would be illuminating the scriptures to our hearts and minds this morning as we open your word. We pray that uh, this message would become rooted in us, that we would become rooted in you, and that as we, we learn how to navigate the various ways in which culture is influencing us and, and, uh, and, and forming us, I pray that we would learn how to love one another. I pray that we would learn how we are being malformed and repent of those ways. And that we would lean into the Jesus way. Help us to be followers of Jesus who love one another the way that Jesus loves us. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 4 in just a few minutes. But before we do, let's see what was built before chapter 4 in chapters 2 and 3. So two weeks ago, we looked at the creation story. A message called Garden Culture. We talked about the way in which God intended culture to work. God created culture. God gave us the calling and the ability to make culture. This is how God intended to work. God gave us this blessing called the Imago Dei. That's the last word, the image of God. God called us to be divine representatives on earth. Not so much an attribute that we possess, but a calling with which we are blessed. I like to say that God called us to be vice regents, royal caretakers of this creation. To reign on the earth, to, to gather up the praises of creation and give them to God. And to reflect into the creation the loving reign of God. Men and women together are called to reflect this image of God. Not in hierarchy, but together as one. That's why patriarchy is not part of the Imago Dei. We talked about that. 
And lastly, we're called to cultivate the flourishing of the creation. I love that word, the flourishing of creation. That is this picture of shalom, the Hebrew concept of wholeness, harmony, justice, right relationship between people. God called us to cultivate shalom. This is how God intended the culture to work. Then last week, we had blizzard in mid-April, showing that the creation is growing. Showing that sin has truly spoiled the shalom of God. Amen? Amen. So instead of an in-person gathering here uh, at CLS, uh, I just did a Facebook Live recording. And um, you may not have seen that, so I'm going to recap kind of the basis of what that was about. But this was a movement from how God intended culture to work to how culture has become corrupted. Right, so this is a message called the corruption of culture. So the context in which culture was created, the context in which we are called to reflect the image of God, is this context of love. God created humanity out of the overflow of the love that God is. And how many of you know that where there is love, there has to be choice? When there is no choice, there's no love. There has to be choice. So in the center of the garden, there is a choice set before humanity. That choice is between the tree of life on the one hand and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the other. And I told you uh, in the video, I said that we often get confused about this choice. It's really easy to get confused. Sometimes we think that this choice is between good on the one hand and evil on the other. But that's, that's not correct. The choice is not between good on the one hand and evil on the other. As if to say that the solution to our problems is just to do good. Let's just all do good. Let's just all obey the law. Let's just all do the right thing and we'll be, we'll be blessed. That leads a lot of people astray into moralism, legalism. How many of you have ever been a part of legalistic churches? I have. So the solution to our problems is not avoid evil, do good. Just follow the law. The choice here that's being presented is a choice between getting our life from God we're getting our life from our knowledge of good and evil. In other words, trusting God or trusting ourselves. I like what Greg Boyd said. Greg Boyd said, our fundamental sin is that we have placed ourselves in the position of God and divided the world between what we judge to be good and what we judge to be evil. This judgment is the primary thing that keeps us from doing the central thing God created and saved us to do, namely, love like God loves. That's our primary sin. It's that we're not getting our life from God and living in God's love, instead we're judging what we need to be good, what we need to be God did not create humanity to be the arbiters of good and evil. That's God's domain. That's God's role. When one is an arbiter of good and evil, we call that one a judge. To eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to assume the role of judge, a role that, that only God is suited for. Humanity is not suited for. So throughout this series, we're going to see how judgment creeps into human culture and malforms us. It gets us to divide the world into what we deem to be good and what we deem to be evil, who we deem to be good and who we deem to be evil. It creates a corruption of culture. Now, there's a word that's been thrown around a lot in the news lately. Uh, there's, a, there's a word that's been thrown around in, in uh, opinion articles and, and 
ahed, and that word is polarized. How many of you heard this word thrown around a lot lately? Polarized. People say, we live in a polarized climate right now. What does that mean? What does it mean to be polarized? We're polarized because people of different generations judge one another. Isn't that true? Millennials, all the millennials fall, right? With their, with their uh, avocado toast. Oh. That's right. We're polarized because people of different geographies judge one another. Isn't that right? It's the people in the cities. It's all their fault. Or it's the people that don't live in the cities, right? It's all their fault. People of different geographies judge one another. People of different faiths obviously judge one another, right? Muslims, Christians, Jews. People of different politics judge one another. I'm sure that's never happened to anyone in this room, right? Okay, just me? We're polarized because people of different cultures judge one another. We become polarized when we stand in judgment of each other. So this week, uh, I started reading, rereading the book by Christina Cleveland, Disunity in Christ, uh, Uncovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. And once again, the first chapter of this book hit me right between the eyes. She's amazing. Christina Cleveland's amazing. And the first chapter is called Right Christian, Wrong Christian. And in this chapter, she talks about how when she first became a Christian, she was so excited to meet other Christians. Every time she met another Christian, she's like, you're a Christian too? Wow! It didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter what kind of Christian they were. She's just so excited to meet another sister or brother in Christ, right? And then as, as, as you know, years went on, she started to develop these categories of right Christian and wrong Christian. And she described her wrong Christian in the chapter. And I gotta tell you, I gotta be honest with you. She's describing wrong Christian. I'm going, yep, that is the wrong type of Christian. Everything she's saying, I'm going, yeah, yeah, uh, oh, yep, that too. Mm, nope. Uh -uh. So then she, she turned it on. She she spins it on me. She said, the right Christian needs wrong Christian. We need one another. We need each other because iron sharpens iron. I gotta tell you, that felt like, ugh, felt like a punch in the gut. Christina Cleveland has a way of uh, pointing out my judgment culture, the way in which I divide the world between good and evil. The story of Genesis teaches us that the heart of the culture that now forms us is this otherizing judgment. Otherizing judgment, creating an other, a wrong type of Christian, a wrong type of person. And it teaches us to judge one another instead of living in God's love. We here at Roots, we like to think of ourselves as a community of misfits, finding identity in Jesus. And as that society, that new type of society, we want to be the kind of people that resist and reject judgment. That kind of judgment of dividing the world into good and evil, people of good and evil. We want to embody the love of God in our community. The love that looks like Jesus dying on the cross, even for his enemies. Now, if you watch the Facebook Live video, this is the point at which I said, all right, some people are shifting in their seats, you know, getting nervous. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is there's no such thing as sin. What I'm not saying is that these issues that we divide over are 
not important. And Christine Cleveland is not saying that as well. She said very clearly in that chapter, these things that people argue about, they're important. We do need to uh, think about issues of justice. We do need to think about theology. These things are important. But we should always come back to the table in love for one another, even when we disagree. And that's the key. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus does call out sin. He does. It's just that Jesus calls out sin in a way that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Jesus calls out sin like this. He teaches his disciples to judge themselves first. Remember the saying of Jesus? Remember when Jesus said, consider your own sin like a log in your eye. And consider the sin of your sister or brother like a speck. That's hard. That's hard to do. I, by default, consider my sin much less than your sin. Did you know that? I do. I think I'm pretty righteous. And I think I'm more righteous than all of you. By default. But Jesus called me and called you to consider our own sin more grievous to God than other people. That's hard to do. At one point, Paul said, I am the chief of sin. Paul! Paul, who was getting stoned nearly to death, Paul, who was getting shipwrecked for the gospel, said, I'm the chief sinner. Jesus calls his disciples to leave their sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to the one who has something against you. Isn't that weird? That's a weird teaching. Somebody got something against me, they should bring it to me. He said, leave your sacrifice at the altar go and be reconciled to the one who has something against you. Jesus said, if you want to be like me, be the servant of all. So Jesus has a way of calling out sin that makes me really uncomfortable. At the heart of it is this rejection of judgment, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of evil. Last week we talked about Genesis 3, how this temptation crept into human culture. This temptation eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil. It crept in through a serpent. But I want to point out something about the effect of what happened. Not the whole story. You can read the whole story if you want on your own. It's, it's uh, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. But I want to talk about the effect. Immediately after humanity eats this uh, fruit from a tree of knowledge of good people, the first effect is shame. Before the fruit was eaten, Humanity existed in this unencumbered fellowship. They were actually naked. Representing our openness to one another, our transparency to one another. But as soon as judgment crept in, shame came in right on the heels of that judgment. And shame, the effect of shame is hiding. They immediately tried to hide themselves from each other and from God. Have you ever been a part of a culture could be work culture, office culture, could be a church culture, could be family. This often happens in family, where there is a judgment culture in this social setting, whatever it is, and that judgment culture has led you and others to hide from one another. You've got stuff going on in your life, you're not going to talk about it. You're going to hide it. Because there's judgment, right? If you reveal what you're real, what's really going on in your life, 
Would you be loved? Or would you be judged? Judgment means the shame and the hiding. For years and years, Moshe and I were part of churches where there was a very clear judgment culture. It led to hiding. And uh, some of it was really heartbreaking. The point is that culture of judgment leads to a toxic culture where we can't love each other well. We can't open ourselves up to one another. There's another effect, though. There's a second effect of this judgment culture creeping in. The second effect is called the blame game. Remember what happens right after God shows up and says, where are you? And he said, we hid because we were naked, right? Immediately he says, oh, did you, did you eat the fruit? And Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, and they both blame God. Right? All God's fault again. The blame game begins. Now in my house, here's how the blame game works. I can go to the refrigerator on any given day. This happens every single day. Pretty much. I can go to the refrigerator looking for something delicious to eat or drink. And I will find empty or nearly empty containers of something. Right? Like milk. It's always milk or sweet tea. Something delicious. It'll be like Half an ounce of milk left at the bottom, like this, right? Or, or you go to the cabinet looking for some Oreos, and there's like, there's a, you know, a, a bag, is it called a bag? A bag of Oreos? What do you call that thing? Container, right? And you're like, yes, oh, there's Oreos! And you grab it, it's very light. Very light. It's too light for a bag full of Oreos. You open it up, there's one Oreo. The way the blame game works in my family is if, is if you didn't kill it, you can't be blamed for it. So you take everything except for the very last bit, right? Tim and I were talking the other day, he said that, you know, in the break room, and there's cake in the break room, and there's one piece left, you cut that piece in half, <laughs> then you cut the half in half, right? That's what, that's what Tim said. That's what they do in my family. Because it's because if they didn't kill it, they can't be blamed for it, right? I didn't kill the milk. Technically, you did not kill the milk. You left. Not enough to do anything with. <laughs> That's how the blame game works in my head. But the blame game can be really dangerous. The blame game can ramp up into something that has truly deadly consequences. Uh, during the lead up to the last election, there was a political rally in which an older white man violently attacked a younger black man who was uh, being led out of the stadium uh, at the protest. And afterward, they, they interviewed the attacker, and they asked him why he attacked this person, and he said, he wasn't acting very American. He said, next time, you might have to kill him. And then at another political rally, a man was, on, was video recorded shouting obscenities at a protest. And later he was asked about it. Why were you shouting obscenities at that protester? And here's what he said. This is a quote. He said, I can't believe I did that. It was me, but I'm not a hateful man. I just got caught up. When I saw the video all over the news of me doing that to that young man, I was just disgusted with myself. That's where the blame game gets out of it. When the blame game is out of control, it leads to scapegoating and demagoguery. You know what demagoguery is? It's when, it's 
when we, we create a them, us and a them. And it's all their fault. It's all, they're all to blame. And sometimes it can, the, the blame can rest on one person. And that one person can get all the shame and all the blame. And when we do that, we participate in a spirit. Have you ever been in a rally? Have you ever been in some kind of meeting where there's an us and them? And there's a spirit. There's a spirit that energizes that room. I call that spirit Hasatan, the accuser. We participate in this spirit of accusation. We say, it's all their fault. Let's go get them. That's the deadly consequences of the blame. But Jesus shows us a different way, doesn't he? Jesus shows us a way that does not lead to shame and blame, but leads to belovedness. Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is our tree of life. Jesus forged the culture in which the last shall be first. Those who are considered outside, those who are considered outcasts, are brought in and made first. Jesus forged the culture in which the greatest commandment that we can follow is to love God and to love our neighbor and our God. Jesus forged the culture in which the one who's been forgiven much loves You've been forgiven much? Jesus forged a culture in which the person who was formerly excluded from the synagogue, from the community of, of the family of God, was invited to dinner. Sinners become saints. People who would have killed each other become family members. Zealots and tax collectors would have killed each other. They become family. Jesus forged a tree of life hope, not a judgment hope. In the story we're reading up right now, we learn how this blame game, this shame and the blame that comes from judgment, finally reaches its, its full climax in the story of Cain and Abel. So, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. This is from the common English Bible translation. The man Adam knew his wife Eve intimately. They became pregnant and gave birth to Cain and said, I have given life to a man with the Lord's help. She gave birth a second time to Cain's brother Abel. Abel cared for the flocks and Cain farmed the fertile land. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? If you don't do the right thing, listen to this. Sin will be waiting at the door, ready to fight. It will entice you, but you must rule over. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. When they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? The Lord said, what did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You are now cursed from the ground that opens his mouth to take your 
brother's life from your hand. When you farm the fertile land, it will no longer grow anything for you, and you will become a lowly nomad on the earth. This is how judgment culture reaches its climax in violence and death. Brother of Jesus in the New Testament, James, writes about this very same thing, about how judgment leads to violence. He writes this in chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You, you desire what you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is thinking of Genesis chapter 4 in the fourth chapter of his, his letter to the church. The Genesis story doesn't tell us why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. It doesn't even tell us why they were sacrificed in the first place. But what it tells us is the effect of sin. Spoiling Shalom. That sin was waiting at the door, waiting to capture Cain, and Cain gave in to it. James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and types. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full-grown, the reason why I'm calling this message the city of Cain is because immediately after this episode, here's what the writer of Genesis says. Cain knew his wife intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain built a city and named the city after his son Enoch. It's this building of the city that I want to focus on uh, for the rest of the time we have together. This building of the city is a small phrase packed with meaning. Because a city is not just a place. A city is not just buildings and roads. It's not skyscrapers and streets. A city is a social system. Everybody say social system. This is critical. In the last 15 years, I've lived in three, four different regions of the United States four different cities. And I can tell you, each one of them was a completely different social system. Very different. Different cultures, different mixes, different ways of communication, transportation, different. Cities are more than their sports teams and their Fortune 500 companies. are communities of people. So in his book, Many Colors, Dr. Wild talks about how we Dr. Wild writes, when a group of individuals come together, they have the capacity to externalize individual values and identity to the group. The first level recognizes that individual values are critical in the formation of corporate identity. So the first phase in creating a social system is externalization. You and I, when we come together, we bring our values and our identity. 
And we externalize them into a corporate identity. That's the first thing. This first phase, or the second phase, is called ex, uh, I'm sorry. The first phase is called externalization. And the, the result of externalization is that the externalized entity takes on a life of its own. This is critical. When we externalize our values, that thing that we create together takes on a life of its own. Here's what Dr. Ross says. Once individuals have externalized their personal values, these externalized individual values form a collective. This collective value system becomes objectified and institutionalized as a system takes on a life of its own. This is what the story is talking about when it says that Cain built a city. Cain externalized the judgment culture that was within him that had already produced death. He externalized it into a city. Here's what Dr. Ross says next. Not only has the institution taken on a life of its own, it has the capacity to affect and shape those within Created system can internalize a set of values into those who are part of that system. We lived in Boston. We lived five minutes from Harvard University. And Harvard University is an institution that is older than the United States of America. It's been around a long time. Did you know that when Harvard was founded in 1636, it was to train Christian ministers? That was their mission. Read the Bible every day. Pray every day and send the gospel around the world. Is that the mission today? <laughs> Harvard has outlived its founders. Harvard has, uh, is an externalized institution that has taken on a life of its own. And now, new people have come into that institution and have externalized new values and have shaped that institution. And you know what else? People have come into that institution and been shaped by the values of Harvard. Is that right? You go to a school, you get school spirit. <laughs> That's what they call it, school spirit. You take up the values and the identity of that school. Harvard has taken on a, a, a life of its own. That institution has a spirit. That's how culture works. Roots has a spirit. Roots have a culture. Taking on a life of its own. But this is not something that happens in a straight line. We don't, we don't stand here, externalize our values, our values become an institution, then that institution internalizes those values over here. It's not a straight line, it's a cycle. So we come into an institution, it's already formed. Some of you came into Roots, it's already formed. Four years old. So we come into an institution and we externalize our values at this point. And the institution internalizes values for us. It's a cycle. It goes round and round. This isn't just information. Here's why this matters. This matters because today we are celebrating the fact that we have come together to externalize something. Something important. Something that matters. We believe that when we come together as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, that we form something new, a new society, a new way of being human beings, a new way of being in the world. We 
believe that the Holy Spirit indwells our fellowship. And that we are externalizing that spirit into something called Roots Covenant Church. And we're hoping that that church will be a witness and will be a formative entity in this neighborhood. People used to ask me when we moved to Boston, why are you planning a church? And I would say, it's easy. Because Jesus' disciples, when they get together, they form Jesus' communities. And Jesus' communities, when they get together, they form Jesus' disciples. And we just go round and round and round. We want Jesus' disciples that form Jesus' communities. And we want this Jesus' community to form Jesus' disciples. Amen? That's what we're about. We want to be formed by this community. And this expression of the kingdom of God, we want to form a new social reality characterized by Christ's love. We want Christ's love to form new Jesus disciples. So I want to uh, close this message with an embodied practice. If you've heard me say anything over the last few months, hopefully you've heard me say that we are formed by the practices in which we participate. Even the ones that we unknowingly participate in. We're doing stuff every day, unconsciously. You get up, you pick up your phone, you check the news. What happened last night when I was asleep? Right? We're formed by these practices that we participate in, even the ones we participate in unconsciously. So why don't we harness that power? Why don't we willfully and intentionally participate in some practices that are going to form us in the right direction? So I created a practice, a formative practice. I want to invite you to come forward when you're ready. We're going to play some music. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back. And we're going to play some music. And when you feel ready, I would like to invite you to come forward. You're going to take one of these cups, one of these planter cups, off of this stack here, right? You're going to take one of these cups, and you're going to fill it with dirt. Good old dirt. Fill the dirt like halfway. And I want you to stick a seed in it. Like this. And put the dirt on top of it. More dirt. Start with one hand. And now I want you to pray. Take a minute, take 30 seconds to pray. And I want you to stick that planter down the dirt. This is your way of saying, I come into this new society as an individual, with my own culture, with my own identity. I bring all of myself, everything that God has put in me, I bring it here. Along with my devotion to Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit. And I join and externalize my values, my identity, into this thing we call Roots Covenant Church. I'm placing it in this shared soil. We're all going to share this soil. We're going to form one new community. One new way of being human. The church. So, when you're ready, carefully come 